Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Chief Development Officer at America's Promise Alliance, Tysley Williams. Tysley is also the Global Inclusion and Diversity Chair for the AFP Global, as well as being a board member for the Nonprofit Alliance and the Director of the Governing Board for the Black Board Giving Fund. Tysley, welcome. Thank you, Jake. So excited to be with you. No, it's so great to have you here. And um, to get started, tell us about the beginning of your fundraising career and what were some key lessons you learned in those early years? Yes. Yeah, so I think like most of us, my fundraising career started by accident. I uh, grew up in the deep south. So here in the States, that is an area of our country that really places a big value on community. And as a young person, I was involved in Girl Scouts and I loved doing civic engagement. And so when I went away to college, I was actually teaching young people uh, classical dance. And that was my part-time job while in college. When I graduated, I loved it so very much. I decided that my first job would actually be founding a community-based dance studio. And so my first job was literally, Jake, as a social entrepreneur. I knew very little about entrepreneurism, and I also knew very little about how to go about raising money. But I leveraged the communication degree that I had, and I stepped into the space uh, using the written and spoken word to essentially create a case for support, uh, to center the fact that there were young people in outside of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, with an interest in learning classical dance, uh, but they needed some generous contributions in order to take advantage of the opportunity. And so through that, I learned um, how to solicit, I learned who to solicit, and then I learned what needs to happen after you've solicited. You've got to follow up, execute stewardship, and make sure you're demonstrating a grateful heart with authentic thank yous. So the start, Jake, was rather um, unplanned, and it was really by necessity. And so as a result of doing that and learning more about the skill sets that I love, I've just continued to stay within the not-for-profit sector, and I've continued to spend the majority of my time uh, leading fundraising teams. Wow, thank you for sharing that and great background story. Um, and when you look back at your career pr prior to being the Chief Development Officer at America's Promise Alliance, what stands out as one of your most successful campaigns or programs to be part of, and why was this so successful? I will say when I look back over my career, one of the most successful campaigns and probably one of the most beloved for me was a capital campaign for YMCA Anthony Bowen. Uh, Jake, this was the first Y created and formed for Black people. Anthony Bowen himself was a freed slave and he formed the first YMCA, which is here in the District of Columbia. And while at the Y, I had an opportunity to partner alongside with an amazing CEO, Angie Reese Hawkins, who was also a history maker. She was the first Black woman to lead this YMCA, which now has an annual operating budget over $70 million. But one of her opportunities was to refurbish and to open YMCA Anthony Bowen. And Jake, what was great about this is that that particular facility, it had been closed for many decades. And so there wasn't a built-in base 
to cultivate relationships from. And we really had to step into the space with a lot of creativity, uh, with a commitment to innovation. And we have some um, tax incentives here in the States that essentially would enable a private land developer to work with us uh, using the land to develop what's called like a blended use space. So the developer would have access to the space uh, to build uh, condominiums and apartment units and the charity would be given the air rights um, or it could be reversed. But the deal that we worked out is that the air rights were actually given uh, to the private developer. And on the first floor and below within that facility, you have the YMCA. And so you have a place that the community can come uh, to swim, to exercise, to learn healthy eating. There's a fabulous demonstration kitchen. And it was the first time, Jake, that I had the opportunity to really step out of the contributed income model and to really stretch beyond the constraints of uh, contributions and donations. And so there are so many ways to power social good, but that is probably one of my favorite campaigns because in addition to building a, a facility, we were actually able to continue to sustain the legacy of Anthony Bowen. And so that was a wonderful project. Uh, capital campaigns were born at YMCAs. And so it was wonderful to also learn the tactics of capital campaign fundraising within the institution that actually birthed the concept here in the States. Wow, what a great story. And um, yeah, congratulations on the success of that. Sounds amazing. But unfortunately, with success uh, often comes a lot of mistakes and failures. So we should always embrace these. Um, but can you recall a time when a fundraising initiative didn't quite go to plan? And what did you learn from that experience? Yes, Jake, I love the concept of failing forward. Um, I think one of the greatest things about uh, innovating and being creative is the opportunity to learn from missteps and mistakes. So I'll say, Jake, what I will probably center here is not necessarily a specific campaign, uh, but more so what I will consider to be some of the most difficult fundraising that I've done, and that is in the disaster fundraising space. And so I spent 14 months uh, with the American Red Cross uh, leading a team in the national capital area, which is one of their largest regions here in the States, one of their top 10 markets. And disaster fundraising, Jake, was unlike anything I had ever experienced. What was really interesting about disaster-based fundraising is that I have always been accustomed to being the solicitor, but it was interesting with disaster fundraising, oftentimes the solicitation was taking place by your local news anchor. It was taking place by uh, social media. And so solicitations were taking place in a rather transactional way and across all channels, but it was really difficult and hard to institute successful strategies that would take a transactional donor to one that was more committed and one that was willing to make year over year investments. The American Red Cross does a plethora of things. It's not just disaster-based fundraising. There's a lot of prevention-based work tied to uh, making sure homes and companies are uh, ready with smoke detectors. And we were trying to make sure that we could raise awareness around um, homes, which typically take place, uh, fires, which typically take place in homes. But it was so hard, Jake, to take what was the exact same uh, call to action around giving uh, and helping a neighbor that may be in need, that there's just something about the urgency and the visuals and the emotions tied to witnessing 
uh, a mass group of people adversely being impacted by disasters. And it just really um, ignites an immediate desire within people to step forward and want to help. And so, um, Jake, what I learned from that is that it is okay for us when building relationships to recognize that donors and investors sometimes make single and isolated choices. Sometimes they're not going to commit year over year or campaign over campaign. And instead of agonizing over it, I think we should create space and opportunity to applaud the generosity, even when the generosity is a one-time expression of compassion. It's still meaningful, it's still purposeful, and more so than anything, it ties back to the wants and the needs of the individual donor. And there, I think, Jake, is the biggest aha moment for me. And that is no matter how great your tactics and strategy, at the end of the day, people have choice and we can take time to understand and try to evaluate the choices they make from a scientific perspective, or we can simply uh, thank people for the choices that they make and learn to accept the generosity when the generosity is given. Great answer, really well put. Um, as mentioned earlier, you're actually currently the uh, Chief Development Officer of America's Promise Alliance. So what does your role specifically entail? So I like to say that the synonym for being a Chief Development Officer is being a Chief Inspiration Officer. That really the role of all relationship builders is to do something that uh, one of the former CEOs of the American Red Cross, uh, Senator Elizabeth Dole, used to say, there are no walls in the development department. Everybody within the organization is a frontline fundraiser. Everyone is willing to speak to the great work, is willing to invite people to invest. And so one of my primary roles at America's Promise Alliance is to create a culture where my peers, where our volunteers, where our alliance members, where young people are excited about creating a reason uh, to invest in developing strategies and creating offerings so that every young person in America has the ability to succeed. And it's interesting, Jake, because I am stepping into a situation where I'm building a brand new team and doing that in the midst of COVID. And so it's been really interesting trying to right set the direction. We've got a new CEO who'll be joining very, very soon. And once our new CEO is in place and we've got a general idea and can crystallize and better articulate the direction in which we're moving in. My role, Jake, will be to turn to communities all across America um, to learn more about the needs of young people and to then create collaborations and partnerships so that young people can step forward and lead and also caring adults can join in the problem solving, and that we can secure the necessary human and financial resources that are needed to ensure that in every corner of the country, everywhere within the U.S., we are meeting unmet needs of young people. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about your leadership style as well, which we'll go into shortly. Uh, but before then, what has largely contributed to the success of America's Promise Alliance's fundraising efforts over the past couple of years? Yes, so even though I am new to America's Promise Alliance, I will say that the organization has been very successful uh, building and forging relationships. And I think, Jake, that there are multiple reasons why America's Promise Alliance has been a success, but one that I especially want to highlight because I think no matter the size of your organization, there's an opportunity to lift and learn from what I think is one of our greatest assets. So I have a team member, Sean Flanagan, who leads our research team. And while our research is uh, very robust, we deal with quantifiable and qualitative research, but one of our greatest assets is our ability to methodically turn to young people 
to solicit their input to gain insights as a result of their lived experiences, to create findings, and to then take the findings, which really just summarize what we learn from young people, and to push the findings out into the world. And by doing that, we're not only benefiting from what we're learning as it pertains to the initiatives that we have, which are generally tied to our grad nation, which is trying to make sure that every young person in America uh, has a high school graduation because we know that it's really, really important as it pertains to gainful employment and a quality of life. And then we have uh, the YES project, which is also focused on employment and empowerment and ensuring that young people have the resources that they need to not only step into adequate employment opportunities, but to ensure that they have the skills to rise within those opportunities. And so research enables us to do that. And what I will say, Jake, no matter what type of organization you're leading, research doesn't have to be so formal. Research can be conducted through a focus group. Research can be conducted through going to your social media channels and seeing what types of comments are being left on post. Research can be what you're cataloging when you're having conversations with donors and you're asking them their thoughts about uh, what your priorities may be or how your impact is being measured. And so I think if we look at research in the less scientific way and really try to step into a creative mode where anytime ideas or opinions are exchanged, whether it's the written or spoken word, that we're trying to lift learnings from that. And in lifting learnings, I hope that people will model what has been the success of America's Promise Alliance, which is to lift those learnings directly from the people and the individuals that you are trying to support and the individuals who you are advocating on behalf of and the individuals that you are centering to advocate for themselves. And so I think on the human resources or the human and health side of the house, Jake, it's so important that when we're dealing with people, that we're making sure people are informing the strategies that we're trying to resource. And that might um, be related closely to this next question, but you've served on boards and you've got experience working with a variety of different nonprofit organizations. But what mistakes do you see nonprofits commonly make when it comes to fundraising? Oh, Jake, I tell you, there are a lot. There are a lot. Um, early on in my career, Penelope Burke uh, became someone that I just really admired because she studied the voluntary resignation of fundraisers. And I observed early on that there were lots of people who had great skills and people said, you know what, I'm out of here. And I think people largely leave organizations because there's a misunderstanding around our role. There's a misunderstanding around the ingredients that need to be at the table in order for a fundraising professional to serve up that apple pie. If you don't have apples and brown sugar and flour, you, you can't necessarily bake an apple pie. And I think, Jake, more often than not, we are placed in situations and in circumstances where we don't have access to what we need in order to meet the financial expectations. And because we're compassionate and because we're caring and because we work hard, we stay in those situations and we say, you know, I'm gonna do the very best I can with the little bit I've been given, even though I need a lot more, because just maybe my tenacity and my work ethic will be enough to produce the results and the outcomes. So I'll say that, Jake, I have found that 
when there is a perception that there is a golden goose or that we are in some ways um, ATM machines where you just jump up, you put in the magic code and out flies all of the currency or here in the States, all of the dollars, it makes it really hard for fundraisers to do our jobs because first, I think we oftentimes don't have the ability to influence what impact is. We're expected to raise money for what impact can do, but we rarely have the ability to influence the mechanism by which we're driving impact. If we cannot step into the programmatic side of the house, if we cannot step into the strategy when the business lines are being defined, if we don't have a voice at that table to say, hey, I'm not really sure that that is something I can raise money for, or I could raise money for this if you're willing to make this adaptation, or I'm able to raise money for this if you're first doing this and resequencing things. I mean, normally concepts and ideas just fall into the development officer's lap. They've been fully baked and there's an expectation that without you giving input, that you are just expected to take that service or that product out into the marketplace and inspire people to invest in it. And sometimes, Jake, we can do just that. And sometimes the failures, you know, the failures we talked about earlier, sometimes those failures come not as a result of the things that we aren't capable of doing, but sometimes failure comes as a result of us not having all that we need in order to activate our capabilities. Now I'm really excited to ask this next question. So in a, in a word struck by COVID right now, how have you and your team innovated during these challenging times and what results have you been seeing from this? Wow. So one way that we've innovated is by stepping into the digital workspace and we've had to step into digital connectivity. And so we have normally, uh, we are known across the US for being exceptional conveners. And we bring together a multitude of uh, stakeholders and we come together and we approach big problems and we coordinate and we then amplify messaging. And what has been a big challenge is that in the midst of COVID, there, there aren't any gatherings. You're not allowed to bring hundreds of people together to problem solve. And so, Jake, I think like many organizations, we have been taking it to the digital streets, highways, and byways. The good news about that is we've been able to introduce our mission and our current focus, which is really centered around building an anti-racist alliance, we've been able to segment out our offerings by focusing on the specific lived experiences of young people. So we had a Latinx uh, roundtable uh, just last week uh, for Black History Month. We uh, celebrated the accomplishments of Black youth and created a roundtable by which caring adults could hear from Black youth in America. And it's been wonderful, Jake, to segment out by identity and to learn more about the needs of young people without having to incur cost for transportation or without having to worry about how do you coordinate uh, schedules. We've been able to record these offerings, make them available even for people who aren't able to join in during the live stream. And we're trying to, um, Jake, really test how we can forge meaningful relationships 
even though we aren't able to rely on what was traditionally our face-to-face -face superpower. So, you know, we're testing things soon with uh, even texting and uh, on some other channels, whether that's Instagram or Twitter, just trying to think through how do we continue to uh, increase the visibility, not only of our mission, but increase the visibility of the need to ensure that young people in America um, have all the resources they need in order to thrive. Wow, that's incredible. And you put a lot of emphasis on your team, which is really great. And what kind of team culture have you built or are you looking to build at America's Promise Alliance? So Jake, I've been spending a lot of time studying adaptive leadership. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the construct, but it's a very simple uh, leadership style. And it essentially is one that I think... Um, ushers in the construct of flexibility just through the term adaptive leadership. But what adaptive leadership does is it creates an opportunity for all individuals to contribute to ways in which problems are solved. So it takes the person who's traditionally in the seat of power or in the positional leadership role and it places that person in equal footing with everyone within the community. And you center the work and you say like, hey, let's get in here and think collaboratively around how we solve for the issue at hand. It's been really interesting, Jake, because there's some times in which the world moves so quickly and so fast and you feel like as the leader, you just have to make an executive decision. But what I've come to learn about high performing teams, and that's what I'm working really hard to build at America's Promise Alliance, is that people want to be able to parachute in to systems and structures that enable quick and swift decision-making while also taking into account people's thoughts, people's perspectives, and enabling people to lead from the front and enabling the leader to almost um, expand and contract as it pertains to their quote-unquote leadership roles and responsibilities. I'll also say, Jake, that I've been trying to do that by modeling um, my father, who was a coach, and I feel like one of the best ways to teach someone anything, whether it's fundraising, is to be a source of uh, motivation and encouragement uh, to recognize that oftentimes people need to be introduced to things in a structured way. People need to see you actually um, demonstrate what you're introducing. People need opportunities to practice with peers, right? As it pertains to the newly introduced behavior or concept. And then people need someone to like shift over to the sidelines and cheer them on. And so Jake, it's been a shift, uh, especially in the midst of COVID, trying to find the energy and the inspiration to remain upbeat, but I know that it's importantly, it, it's very important and it's extremely critical uh, just to ensure that I'm maintaining a spirit of optimism so that the entire team can, can genuinely sense and feel that we will find our way through a really difficult time. Yeah, I love that. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing insight into your leadership style as well. It seems very um uh, progressive and it sounds yeah really exciting it sounds like you're creating a really exciting team to be part of which is great and um, you're a real prominent leader and influencer in the fundraising space in America and you also address important issues of combating ages ageism sexism and racism within nonprofit organizations so can you please give us an overview of how these problems exist today in the nonprofit sector yes so I will say generally, Jake, I think these problems manifest themselves in what we would consider to be bias. And bias is essentially treating one individual differently than another individual, um, either an, 
intentional act or an unintentional act. So you can have bias and, you know, it's something that we all have. I mean, I have bias, even though I identify as a black woman. Uh, we have grown up in a world and in a society that really forges community through this concept of shared affinity. And so you think about your places of worship or you think about your um, educational institutions or you think about the hobbies that you have. Oftentimes you go to places and spaces and you find people who look like you. And as a result of engaging with those people, you draw moral judgments and you say, I am good. And so these people who are like me, we are good. And you have a tendency to see someone who maybe doesn't look the same way, maybe has a different identity, uh, maybe a different age, maybe from the LGBTQ plus community, and that judgment comes into play. I think within the not-for-profit sector, it is really important for us to understand bias, to first have an awareness of the fact that we all need to combat bias. Bias shows up in a multitude of ways within the not-for-profit sector. It shows up not only through interpersonal relationships as it pertains to who you might invite uh, to sit down and have lunch with you or who you decide to uh, recommend for um, a promotion, bias also shows up in policy and in systems because policies and systems are essentially decisions that are being made by people who have bias. And so within the not-for-profit sector, especially one that centers the importance and the value of money or currency, it is so critically important that we are mindful that value extends beyond how much an individual or an institution can invest or contribute. And we have to push against this bias that wealth solely rests within white men. We have to also be intentional in creating equitable places and spaces so that the earning power and potential of others is equal to that of white men. When you look at the wealth distribution, they're just some statements of fact. I sit and have these conversations with my fundraising friends all the time and they're like, but Tysley, when you look at the number of people who have the wealth, overwhelmingly, the wealth tends to be within the power of white men. And that is absolutely the case. And so that is one of the reasons why I am really intentional about trying to introduce different beliefs because we want to see a world where we behave differently. We want to see a world where wealth and value can be seen in all types of people and our willingness to champion people our willingness to mentor and sponsor people, our willingness to learn from people. Even when we may be in positions of power, I have to remind myself all the time, young people have so much that they can introduce me about living in 2021. And it isn't just how to get on TikTok, right? It isn't just the things that you think would be uh, pushed over into the young people category. I mean, young people should actually, and I actually have a young person mentoring me on supervision of my team. What are some things that can work? And so I am really passionate, Jake, about doing this within our sector because I think that so many business individuals um, that run businesses and companies and government they are a part of our communities. And when they see us modeling principles and values and morals that introduce equity and they see the benefit 
of an equitable environment, they may be more likely to step into the corporate sector and be a champion of equity. They may be more likely to go back to government and say, you know, it's really important for us to behave in a way that centers values. And so I think one of the greatest gifts that we have as individuals within the not-for-profit sector is to influence the hearts of humanity. And if we can influence people's hearts, if people are open to feeling differently, and if we can be a pathway to take what may be a negative feeling and to turn it into a positive feeling, then I think we are all well equipped, no matter what area of concentration we have within our mission, we're all equipped to partner with our volunteers, with our staff, with our board, with our donors, to create a more equitable world. And it's something, Jake, that I'm really passionate about. And I really appreciate you asking me uh, why it matters. And I look forward um, to learning more about what matters to you, as well as to your listeners, as it pertains to equity. Thank you for sharing that. It's such an important issue. And um, I was just taken in everything that you were saying. And I think it's such a great um, subject to really bring forward, especially in the nonprofit sector. And I think for our viewers as well, who may who will be listening to this and may want to do an internal audit um, to see how these issues exist within their organization. I mean, what can they look out for? So there are some fabulous resources available as far as audits are concerned. In my volunteer time, I work with an organization, um, the Nonprofit Alliance, and uh, we have been using a tool that was created by Harvard University. And it is essentially a, a self-assessment tool that enables individuals and institutions to kind of rate where they are along this equity journal journey. Um, what I'll say, Jake, is some of the baseline things that I think are really important begin with just initial cataloging of the composition of people. So we, we've talked a lot about um, fundraising and we've talked a lot about financial capital. We also know that in order to achieve that financial capital, social capital is so critically important. And so I would invite us to literally start by looking at the hands that are connected to your organization. And I would invite individuals to ask others to self-identify as it pertains to who they are. So I'll give you an example. Um, Jake can try to break this down a little bit. I feel like I'm kind of operating uh, in the theory a bit. But within our not-for-profit organizations, we have people. We have people who come to work every day and receive compensation or a paycheck. So that's one group of stakeholders to start with. Who are the people at the table? How do they self-identify? Oftentimes those records may be kept uh, through human resources, or you may say, we're interested in collecting what we call here in the States, Jake, demographic information. And it really creates a baseline so that you can say, we're an organization of people who are 80% X, 20% Y. And you may have a goal or an aspiration of diversifying your staff demographics, just like we diversify our fundraising. So I think, Jake, the first step is trying to create a baseline as it pertains to the individuals that are connected to your mission. And so whether it's your staff, whether it's your volunteers, in the event you provide services to people, and of course your donors. And there are a multitude of ways to do that. But I think, Jake, that that is a very important first step, simply understanding uh, the hearts and hands of the people, your organization, that you're connected to. 
Yeah, I thank you for sharing that. And it's very practical advice as well. And it's an issue that exists globally as well. Um, you know, look to your even in your city, your country, it's something that exists um, in every country in the world. And I think it's such an important issue. And while creating an inclusive and diverse team should be high priority um, from a best practice and ethical perspective, I mean, how does this also filter down through to an enhanced team performance? So I think when we talk about diversification and when we look at it from a fundraising perspective, I think when we have people that represent multiple identities, we have a higher probability to create messaging and content that is going to resonate with a broader audience. If we enlarge our audience, we have a higher probability of increasing contributions and donations because more people are connecting to what we're saying more people are responding to the call to action, and more people have the opportunity to establish trust by seeing themselves or people who look like them favorably positioned within the organization. So that can either be through advertising, through social media posts, through staff positions, it's really important for people to feel as if they can connect to your organization, that they would be welcomed within your organization. Because Jake, as you know, we've kind of hit on this throughout our conversation. Diversity simply means bringing together a variety. Inclusion means once that variety is brought together, you have the ability to value the variety by enabling those who represent differences to have authority, to have responsibility, to have acknowledgement. And so as we think about creating this equitable place and space, we also wanna make sure that we're honing in on the importance of inclusion. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And um, I think it's going to come as no surprise that you also serve on the board for the Nonprofit Alliance, which we've, uh, which have mentioned as well. And the AFP Global is the Global Inclusion, Diversity, Equity and Access Chair. Uh, what is your role here? And I don't even know, I don't think I have to ask this, but I will anyway. But why is this so important to you? So it's important to me because it's an extension of my personal values. Um, I think that when it comes to doing volunteer work, I am most handsomely paid, even though I don't receive a single dime in financial contribution, I am handsomely paid because I receive so much joy and so much satisfaction in seeing our sector make gains. So within the Association of Fundraising Professionals, which is a global association of fundraisers who are working day in and day out to practice ethical and effective fundraising, we've adopted some shared principles within our AFP community. And those principles are inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. And in 2018, actually on International Women's Day, which is coming up again on March 8th, on 2018, we unveiled to the globe a commitment to rolling out our first initiative, which was the Women's Impact Initiative. And it was during that work, Jake, that we wanted to learn more about the unique and specific lived experiences of women in the fundraising space. A few months prior, uh, AFP had conducted um, a survey and it was around sexual harassment and it unveiled some very startling facts that nearly set more than 70% of women, uh, almost one in four, um, had experienced sexual harassment. And we had uh, men who also had reported being harassed as frontline fundraisers. And sexual harassment is not appropriate. 
it is something that no matter the power dynamic that exists between a donor and a frontline fundraiser, we wanted to understand what was unfolding. And then we wanted to stand up some concrete solutions to try to solve for sexual harassment. So within the Women's Impact Initiative, we placed an emphasis on sexual harassment. We also wanted to learn more about the inequity of pay. We know that men and women are not paid the same as a result of an annual uh, compensation survey that AFP produces, as well as other research in the field. And we also, Jake, wanted to take a look at the lack of women who were able to ascend to the highest levels of leadership roles. It was through those three areas that we began to uh, unveil an awareness campaign across all three areas. We actually resourced research in partnership with a university here in the States. And we unveiled a global, global mentoring program, which is a project-based uh, mentorship that enables uh, women to define a future project and to be paired with a seasoned woman to provide guidance and expertise uh, to help that woman achieve the specific project of interest. So it was through those things and the work is continuing. We have an excellent woman leading by the name of Liz LeClaire. Uh, Liz is Canadian and doing a wonderful job making sure that the Women's Impact Initiative work continues. Well, you're doing such great work in the profession and I really can't wait to see what the next five to 10 years um, holds for you because I know uh, your message is just going to spread throughout nonprofit organizations and it's just great. Um, and with that, you've already progressed through some of some very prestigious roles in the profession. And what would your advice be to uh, aspiring fundraising leaders early in their career to ensure that they're successful? Yes, well, thank you, um, Jake, for the kind words and for the acknowledgement. It, it literally is a labor of love, not only for me, but I bet for many individuals listening in, it truly is a joy uh, to be a fundraiser. I think every day of the F-U-N that begins with the work that we do. I'll say there are two things um, that, I'll, that, I'll, that I think are critically important. And there's, it stems from um, a tactic that we know a lot about, and that's um, soliciting. So I would say, Jake, that it's important to solicit input. It's important to open your ears and close your lips. It's important to listen. And I think by listening to others, we have the capacity to learn. And by learning, we have the ability to fail forward, you know, just as we started this conversation. I think it's equally important to be open to unsolicited advice and guidance and counsel. I remember as a younger professional, there were many people who honed my skills. And while I was proactive in knocking on doors and soliciting input and asking for advice, I only had access to those people who would say yes to me. May I call you? Will you have lunch? May I get your thoughts through email? As I aged, I began to see that even though I wasn't soliciting input and advice and guidance and counsel, that when someone truly cares about you and someone truly wants you to be all that you can be, they step forward with unsolicited advice. And it's very easy to be dismissive of that because you're saying, well, I really didn't ask you your thoughts on this. You're really not the person who I think is going to be the best uh, counselor. But what I've come to realize is oftentimes 
unsolicited advice is some of the best advice you can have because it brings to your attention blind spots. It introduces things that you don't even know to think. It introduces like the aha moments if you're really open to listening and if you don't just discount and discredit immediately because it was something that came to you in an unsolicited way. So if I could say anything to my younger self and something that I try to say to myself time and time again, meeting after meeting, exchange after exchange, and that is to be open to the unsolicited advice. Wow, that's great advice. And before we wrap things up, where we get into your final advice, which is if you've got anything left in there that's been great so far, what goals are you next striving for in the next five to 10 years? You know, I would say within the next five to 10 years, um, I'm hoping to shift back to some of my first loves. And so I started uh, in this career as an entrepreneur. I have a degree in communication with a minor in journalism. And so as I shift to the last chapter of my professional career, I'm hoping to shift back into an entrepreneurial space. I'm hoping to do more writing. I'm hoping to do more speaking. And I'm hoping to do more uh, laughing and more learning. So I'm hopeful, Jake, that that's where the next chapter is going to take me. Oh, wow. That sounds great. And I can't wait to see what you're going to bring um, in the entrepreneurial space as well. It sounds incredible. I've got... Um, yeah, I know you'll just thrive in whatever you do. It sounds incredible. And we are down to the last question, but I did want to say, Tysley, thank you so much for coming on Fulfill today. It's been great. What's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? It's super simple. Uh, one of my teachers, Dr. Maya Angelo, used to say, nothing works unless you do. So I'm wishing everybody all the best as you get to work and do the work of ensuring that we continue to live in a world full of kindness and compassion.